and welcome to Linux Action News, our weekly take on Linux and the open source world. This is episode 18, recorded on September 10th, 2017. I'm Chris. And I'm Joe. Hello, Joe. It's good to be with you again. And I have one question for you at the top of our show, Joe. Are you a wearables guy? I am. I've got a Sony Smartwatch 3, and I love it. I've also got a Pebble that someone donated to me once, which I loved, but then... After the developments with Pebble getting bought by Fitbit, I thought mm, maybe it's time to get an Android watch. And I wear it all the time. Yeah, I Generally, only when I'm going out, um, because it's good for being polite in conversations. A quick glance at the wrist is better than getting your phone out of your pocket, I find. That is true. I've, over the years, become more of a wearable person. I started skeptical, also started with the Pebble myself, and just have tipped my toe in over and over again just to see where things are at. So the Connect Watch got my attention. It's a smartwatch with Asteroid OS, and it's launched a crowdfunding campaign. Yeah, so Asteroid OS is something that was kind of part of the reason for buying the Sony Smartwatch 3, because... The, one of the early alphas was available for that watch. And so I have actually had a chance to check it out. And okay, Bluetooth wasn't working, so I couldn't really check it out as a functional device. But it was looking quite nice back then. And to have it on hardware that it's specifically designed to go on looks good to me. And the fact that this is an open source watch OS, much more open source than Android Wear is, it's great. The only problem is the crowdfunder is in French and very French-centric, and the promotional materials are all in French. And so I think it's going to have a limited audience, which is a real shame because I'd love to see a proper open-source OS dominate this area. Is this the first time we've seen something like this since the Pebble? But this is even more open-source and, and more out there than the Pebble was. Uh, and that, to me, is also noteworthy because we've seen a lot of attempts at phones and tablets and convergence-type devices. But this is a proper watch. It's small. It's reasonably well-designed. I would say it has more of a sports look than a classic yeah. sort of showy watch. And it has it has hard-painted seconds around the outside. And it's a circular display, a 1.4-inch, 400-by-400 AMOLED display. It's got a MediaTek quad-core processor, has support for Bluetooth, Wi-Fi, GPS, and depending on the model you get, you can also put a, uh, a micro SIM in this, and it has a GSM card in there. Mm, that's kind of um, kiss of death for me, because that just puts it in line with all those cheap Chinese watches that are standalone, running some sort of version of Android, usually a really old version, and I had one of those to start with, and that was just terrible. But I suppose it can't hurt to have the uh, cellular functionality to it. But as long as it pairs properly to an Android phone or an iOS device, I think that's the main thing. And it's kind of a, the Wi-Fi and cellular are just kind of um, nice add-ons, I suppose. But um, you've got two different versions of it, one with 512 megabytes of RAM and one with a gig of RAM. Uh, and they are four gigs of storage or eight gigs of storage. Um, and the price is quite a reasonable price they're asking for on here, $120 gets you the cheaper one. And the expected retail price is only going to be $180, so 150 euros, which is very cheap for a, a wearable, although I suppose it's quite a modestly spec'd one, so it's probably a fair price for it. I'm a big believer that health is a lot of the reasons these devices are being sold. People want to track everything from steps to sleep mm. as a way to sort of quantify their own health and maybe start losing weight or just start to set personal goals. And I wonder... Is it going to be competitive in that way? And I just mention it because at this price point, which is a very competitive price point, but at this particular price point, there's a lot of fitness players that do that job really well at that price point. Well, that's the thing with wearables. 
the fitness trackers have done really well and everything else just hasn't. And so I think it's quite a niche market here that they're going after. And it's probably the market people like me, open source people who are interested in having their notifications on their wrist, basically. So as for mass market adoption, mm, I can't see it unless it does the fitness stuff as well, really well. But we've yet to see that because it's still quite an early stage. I'm going to watch this crowdfunder with a lot of interest. Not going to bag it myself, obviously, but I'm going to watch it with a lot of interest just to see where a device like this, a wearable running Asteroid OS goes. I'm sure loads of other people will watch it too. Ha, 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 ha. Otherwise, they're all going to be getting together in Poland, I suppose. It's either that or, or the watch, right, Joe? Yeah, so there's going to be a Sailfish OS meetup in Krakow, Krakow, uh, Poland. <laughs> you see how I made you say it. <laughs> yeah. I think in Poland it's called Krakow, but um, everyone else calls it Krakow. Anyway, that doesn't really matter. So this shouldn't be news, right? Except for the CEO of Yola is actually going to be there. So it seems like if you're in Poland or can get to Poland pretty easily and you're interested in Yola and Sailfish, you should be going to this thing. What would you ask him if you could go? Uh, that's a very good question that I should have thought about. Um, it's because I know I can't go, I haven't thought about it. But I suppose I'd ask, um, realistically, how is the business side of things doing? Are you going to survive? And I suppose he'd give me a stock answer. But if I got him drunk enough, maybe he'd give me the truth. I would try to come up with a tactful way to ask him, what are you doing with the money you raise for the Sony Xperia X running Sailfish? Are you are you paying off backers with that? Are you funding the business? Can you tell me where that money exactly is going? Yeah, that would be a good question to ask, definitely. So if anyone does go to this and speaks to uh, Sammy, then do let us know because it sounds uh, like a very good opportunity to give him a grilling and see exactly what's going on with Sailfish. In the meantime, things are looking up for you lineage users. Yeah, so we've reported on Project Treble before, which is basically a modular underlying base for Android, which means that the device drivers uh, and the proprietary blobs can sit underneath as a separate layer to the kind of UI and all of the rest of the Android stuff. And that was kind of uncertain for what it would mean for custom ROMs. Well, there's a story here on xdadevelopers.com, which is looking very positive because it might well be that if you have a Project Treble phone, then all of the difficult bit is taken care of by that. And then you can just swap out the Android bit for any custom ROM, any AOSP ROM or lineage or whatever, which means that it's potentially going to be really easy to develop custom ROMs for these phones. Yeah, Errol Wright over at xdadevelopers.com puts a fine point on it in his article. He says, almost all the components inside the phone use an independent proprietary blob and requires patches and workarounds independently on each part so that newer software can take advantage of it, like the new version of Android. This is a truly time-consuming task, and the main reason why most stable custom ROMs, like Lineage OS, don't appear for two to three months after the final Android release drops to AOSP. All this effort also means the resulting ROM will only work on one device, or in the best case, a handful of identically or very similar devices, maybe with like different names. Yeah. But now, because of the way Project Treble has modularized this, it, this layer of Android with the, with the device interactions and device drivers, all Treble devices on the market, once we get to that point, will be able to boot a generic stock AOSP build of Android. 
So this is going to take away most of the hassle of porting a custom ROM to an older device. It's If it can boot AOSP, it's going to be able to boot Lineage. Yeah, which is great news. But the kind of fly in the ointment, you alluded to it there, is that it needs to be a Project Treble phone, of which there are only three or four at the moment. And yes, Google is trying to push this standard, and I hope they can use their power with the OEMs to make it mandatory. Right. But it means that all the old phones are still going to be as difficult to develop for, which we've got custom ROMs for some of them at the moment, the OnePlus One and the Nexus phones and stuff, but it's going to be incredibly difficult to convert those old phones to Project Treble. There's a kind of ray of hope at the end of the article, but I think that's wishful thinking, really. I'd also add it won't be flawless. Even once AOSP just builds and boots on the device, there's still going to be tweaks to some of the drivers for the camera and all these other things. So it's it's not a 100% solution, but it takes care of the most challenging part of the problem. Yeah, well, here's hoping. Mozilla's taking on a challenging problem, and that's comments online. They think they've reinvented online comments, and uh, they're targeting it directly at journalists. They've got to spend those billions somehow, and uh, <laughs> this week it's online comments. So they've got... Talk, which is developed by the Coral Project, which is in association with some other people like the Washington Post and uh, the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age. So there's quite a few people teaming up here and Mozilla's pumping a bit of money into it. And it sounds quite good in theory. It's a nice, small, lightweight comment system that seems quite full-featured, easy moderation, that kind of thing. But People are just moving away from comments, and that's that's what it's trying to address, fair enough. But websites are discouraging comments or turning them off left, right, and center and just driving people towards social media and just let Twitter or Facebook or whatever handle it. So I can see why they want to do this. They want to decentralize it, but there has to be the will for people to decentralize it. And are you going to take back the burden of mm. running your own comments and moderating them and paying people to do that if you're a big company? I can't see it being hugely successful, unfortunately. That might be why they're targeting journalism particularly. So you mentioned it earlier, Fairfax Media's websites in Australia, including the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age are taking part of this, as well as the Washington Post. And the idea is they work with Mozilla and the Project Coral Group, and they self-host, I don't know if it's on-premises or not, an instance of talk. Now, Talk says that they've been informed by a huge amount of research into online communities. They commissioned academic studies and held workshops around the world to find out what works and also pushed guides <laughs> to help newsrooms change their <laughs> strategies. In other words, they marketed heavily by writing papers. But they do have some key principles I like. You own the data, you being the, the outfit that runs the Talk server, and it's 100% free. It's public and available for anyone to run. You don't have to be a, a newspaper that would want to use this. They really position themselves, though, as improving journalism through engagement. And they talk a lot about that. And they talk about digital journalism revolutionizing how the news engages with its audience. That's a lot of big hyperbole. But there is a little bit of sound business logic to Mozilla being one of the brands behind a platform like this. Assuming the journalism business has a need for a product like this, Mozilla is a pretty trusted brand in this space. And I think this is actually a decent angle for them to look into. In terms of them hosting it, because you've got the option to self-host, but Mozilla could have a supported hosted version that they charge you for. I think it's more than that. It's Mozilla being willing to be such a large contributor to the Coral Project, and it's Mozilla willing to work with the Washington Post and help commission these studies. I think they're building on top of a well-trusted online brand. 
But how does it make the money? Uh, <laughs> money, Joe? That's not... Oh, geez, Joe. How dare you? <laughs> it must be... I would assume it must be through hosting. It must be eventually there or... Or maybe the real money's in consulting, setting it up, doing a study with the business, coming in, looking at how they engage with their audience and comparing it to their academic studies and the papers they've published, and then writing them a recommendation, and then, of course, supplying the IT workforce to implement that recommendation. Could be a very lucrative business. Yeah, that actually makes sense. You don't have to host it yourself. You can go and set it up for them on their own servers. And yeah, yeah, that's actually quite a good business model. Yeah, maybe you should do that kind of thing, Chris. Speaking of self-hosted, go to digitalocean.com, create an account, and use our promo code, here's the thing. Now, they have systems starting at just three cents an hour that I love and even lower. And they go all the way up to these monster systems with 200 gigs of RAM, the latest Intel Xeon processors, and every single system at DigitalOcean has SSD storage. And when you need more, you can attach block storage up to 16 terabytes. And it shows up to Linux as an actual block device. It's really fun to play with for educational or to put it in production. And that's how all DigitalOcean is, with built-in monitoring and alerting, performance metrics, and guides for days. Go to DigitalOcean.com, use the promo code, here's the thing, and then go take advantage of their documentation. But here's a little secret. It's available to everyone. And Brian B. up there has a guide about object storage versus block storage. It really makes sense of all of it. DigitalOcean.com, get a system spun up in less than 55 seconds with a super sweet, easy-to-use dashboard and straightforward API. With systems that start at just $5 a month, use our $10 promo code. Here's the thing, all one word, at DigitalOcean.com. So recently we were talking about blockchain technology and how it's a little bit more than just Bitcoin. And one aspect of it is ICOs, initial coin offerings. Well, bad news if you're in China because they have been banned by the government. Bad news if you're a Bitcoin investor because the price has been all over the place. It shot up to $5,000 a few days ago and then rocketed back down to $4,200. That's a lot of movement for one day. And it's coming from a financial regulator out of China. The regulator described initial coin offerings as a form of unapproved illegal public financing that raises suspicions of fraud and criminal activity. Yikes. Mm, And this is not just China, is it? It's looking like this is going to happen in the US and Europe as well. Yeah, similar regulation could be coming to the US for sure. This July... The U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission warned that ICOs were being used to sidestep the law. And last week, the agency issued another statement describing coin offerings as potential scams, quote unquote. Yeah, and I've heard other people throw around Ponzi scheme as a term. That sounds familiar to me. Yeah, there's a real challenge, though, with these peer-to-peer decentralized blockchain-based technologies Blocking them is sort of like blocking the internet or water. Eventually, it finds a path. Yeah, but what about this rumor that China's going to shut down uh, the Bitcoin exchanges there? I mean, that has been a big part of uh, the devaluation of Bitcoin this week. Yes, this has definitely played a role in that price going all over the place. China is a huge part of Bitcoin right now with lots of mining and exchange activity over there. And it's possible. This is coming from the Bitcoin exchanges themselves. They're apparently getting some warning signs and they're awaiting clarification that authorities may order them to shut down, which the news has just caused Bitcoin to go crazy. And if that does happen, presumably the price will drop for a bit, but then exchanges will spring up in probably other Asian countries, and then the price will go back up again. So that would be a good time to buy. 
Indeed. And assuming this doesn't impact mining, I think you're probably right. There could, there will be an initial uh, sale on Bitcoin as everybody processes this news. But assuming they don't shut down the mining, which is just running computers doing math, I don't imagine they would. I don't think it's going to long-term affect Bitcoin much. Yeah, I mean, they might try and block ports and stuff, but these people are pretty technical. <laughs> the miners in China, I'm sure they will get around it with um, DNS hacks or whatever, proxies, that kind of thing. So I can't see them shutting down the mining. No. But yeah, I think short term, it's not looking good for Bitcoin, but I just, I cannot see it going down long term. It just seems to be going up and up and up. And maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it is a bubble, but I I kind of changed my opinion on it in the last year because I I just kept thinking that it was going to crash and burn and go back to one cent or something. And, uh, you know, people would be ordering two pizzas for whatever, but it's just, it's not, it's not going to happen. It just keeps growing. The thing to keep in the back of your mind about Bitcoin, and it's not to say something couldn't come along and replace it, but you have that limited amount that's also a factor. So there is a finite amount of Bitcoins that will ever be mined, and we are racing towards that deadline right now, which puts an extra spin on all of this, on the value of the coin, on what people are going to do with the fundamental technologies after that's happened. It adds a whole other dimension to it. And, you know, it's almost like somebody should start a show, and uh, they should just podcast about Bitcoin all the time. Yeah, maybe it could be your plan B. Maybe, maybe. (laughs) You know, speaking of those miners in China, I bet storage is a big issue for them, so they're probably rushing to install the new ButterFS driver for Windows. (laughs) Yeah, that's twice you made a joke about this. Oh, come on, I can't help it. I can't help it. I can't help it. You know, Joe, Joe, here's the thing. Here's the thing, Joe. <laughs> if ButterFS was 100% solid and this code, this this driver code was 100% solid, like we're years into it being solid, then it's like serious usable storage technology. But when it's an alpha driver for a file system that appears to be in beta state, I just can't, I can't help but laugh. Well, hang on. This is a 1.0 release. That means it's completely finished and ready for production, right? Yeah, it does. I It does. I It does look good. I mean, <laughs> it feels like it's only ready for production after years of being in production when it comes to storage. But it's got all of the major features, including RAID 0, 1, 10, 5, 6. It's got caching. It's got dis- discovery of partitions. Supports ACLs and symlinks. It has free caching. Uh, has, I mean, free space caching. It has uh, compression support. It's got trim support for SS. I mean, it's all there, Joe. It's all there. It's arguably more there than ButterFS itself. <laughs> yeah, I guess it's been in the works for more than a year too. So I, I have been making some fun. You're right. I, I respect it though, and I appreciate it. I know if I'm ever on a Windows machine and all of a sudden I need an extended four driver, I am so thankful when I find one. Yeah, exactly. And if you are a SUSE user, then this might come in useful. Although that, I think that's just the uh, the root partition, isn't it? Like the storage tends to be um, something else. So it might not be that useful, but it's it's good to see that Windows users can access uh, ButterFS now, at least. Yeah, I, I suppose so. <laughs> and I, I don't judge anyone for using it. Have a good time. Let us know how it goes. Go to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash contact and send us an email or at Linux Action News on Twitter if you've tried this. Meanwhile, let's take a look at Docker Hub. Yeah, some stats about the base distribution in Docker images on Docker Hub that I found really surprising this week. Yeah, I did as well. So this is an analysis that the Anchor platform does. They look at a bunch of different data sources. And so it's as reliable as their methodology, but they're pulling it from Docker Hub, and soon they're going to expand to Amazon EC2 and other ones. But right now they're just pulling from Docker Hub. And they show Debian with a surprising 61.7% lead as the base OS for these containers. And... 
Alpine is number two at 19.7%. And then, coming in at a distant third, they show Ubuntu at 7.8%. Now that is the big surprise to me. Alpine, I would expect to be very popular because it's so lightweight, it's so slimmed down, it's perfect for containerization. But then my understanding was that Ubuntu was up there with it and that maybe it would be kind of those two sharing you know, 50-50 of the biggest chunk of it and then all the other ones, CentOS, BusyBox, you know, the, the smaller ones taking a small slice. But I just had no idea that Debian was so popular. This data surprised me because some of the numbers, the market share I had heard for Ubuntu was like 70% of containers. To see Ubuntu represented at 7.8%, leads me to think either a couple of things. Anchor's date is bogus, or that number is dramatically different depending on where you survey. Look at this on Docker Hub. That, right there, let's stop there. Docker Hub contains a lot of hobby projects, a lot of things people are just throwing up there and trying out. If you were to look at things like Amazon EC2 or Azure, where people are running expensive instances, they're getting work done, I wonder if these numbers would be significantly different. So the, the platform you survey probably makes a huge difference in the results that you get. Yeah, you'd expect to see a lot more Red Hat and a lot more Ubuntu, basically. Yeah, yeah, because CentOS is 3.7%. It has less market share than unknown. The only distribution that is more poorly represented on this chart is SUSE, because they don't open SUSE and SUSE Enterprise don't even register on the map. Well, again, you'd kind of expect to see SUSE on uh, Azure and, and Amazon clouds rather than, as you say, more of the hobbyist stuff. So mm -hmm. maybe when we get an analysis of that, which is promised by Anchor, then we will um, see that for sure. But uh, this is another name clash, isn't it? How many tech things are they called Anchor? There's that like, podcasting thing. There's uh, these guys, and then there's the portable chargers. It's, uh, it gets really confusing. It's an old pet peeve of mine, Joe. That seems like an old man's complaint, but why can't these kids figure out these names? <laughs> yep. <laughs> so let's talk about Nginx. And it seems that they're growing up because at first it was kind of a really lightweight server and good to use as a load balancer and a proxy and that kind of stuff. But of course, they've got Nginx Plus, which is their proprietary commercial offering. And now they're looking to seriously expand that and basically become proper enterprise-y corporate. Yeah, an application platform is how they're positioning themselves with a suite of products that you put together, and you, it makes a platform. So you take Nginx Plus, which combines a load balancer and a cache and a web server, and it's built on top of the open source Nginx. And then this platform also includes the Nginx controller, which is like a centralized management component. Now you can see where it's maybe going to play a role in enterprise with internal applications built on top of Node.js and whatnot. Yeah, and they are now going to support uh, Kubernetes as well, which is massive in the enterprise. Uh, well, certainly if Canonical are to be believed. Containers and Kubernetes and all of that and centralized management, that's all the buzzwords and things you got to do to play in this modern, agile app world that Red Hat and Canonical are all going after. These are all the boxes you have to check, and Nginx is staying very competitive by doing this. To what extent do you think it's going to impact the open source version that millions of people are using? I'm going to hope that it just means increased funding for development. And I would imagine that they recognize keeping that open, keeping that available exactly as it is, is a key part to adoption and, and a key part to the integration they've seen in the industry. Yeah, because you need to learn something and you're not going to pay probably, whereas if you can just app get install it or you know yum install it or whatever... It, it gets to people who are learning it 
in the first place it sort of tied into nginx and then once they're working professionally with it maybe they're going to be uh, convincing their company to pay for the um nginx plus and and this new application platform nginx is going through a process that we've seen a lot of open source projects over the years go through when they become really critical to the enterprise we've seen this happen with docker and other other projects where businesses form around them and then all of a sudden they have a lot of different priorities i'm hoping that in 2017 we can look back at all the previous attempts learn from their mistakes and do it right. So far, I haven't heard a lot of people complaining about them screwing this up. Well, here's hoping. To get every episode of Linux Action News every single week, visit linuxactionnews.com slash subscribe for all the ways to get new episodes of the show. And go to linuxactionnews.com slash contact for all the different ways to get in touch with us. And speaking of support, you can go to patreon.com slash Signal. Support this show, my crazy trek to New York to document the Ubuntu rally and more. Patreon.com slash Signal. We'll be back next Monday with our weekly take on the latest Linux and open source news. I'm at Chris LAS. I'm at Joe Rissington. Thank you for joining us and we'll see you next week. See you later. Bye.